Forbes uh, does an annual survey uh, to put a price on the cost. If you had to hire someone to do all the responsibilities and jobs of a mom, and they crunch the numbers each year, and they, they try to figure out all the different positions and things that a mom does. So here's, here's their hybrid job role. Academic advisor, accountant, art director, athletic director, CEO, coach, daycare teacher, dietitian, instructor, event, event planner, executive housekeeper, facilities director, groundskeeper, interior designer, janitor, judge, laundry, <laughs> laundry manager, logistics analyst, maintenance supervisor, network administrator, photographer, plumber, school teacher, psychologist, recreational therapist, staff nurse, social media specialist, tailor, and a work slash life manager. That's a lot. So the average stay-at-home mom, based on those, and they tried to slice it up, you know, to a normal work week, would have an annual salary of $178,000. The average working mom would be paid just for her, her role at home would be paid about $80,000. Unfortunately, it's an unpaid position. <laughs> but moms are awesome. We owe a lot to our moms. And we're going to look at the word this morning to see what it has to say, uh, primarily for mothers, but the rest of you can listen in and glean something from it as well. Turn to Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 21 of Acts 19. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul had persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. If you continue to read this story, what ends up happening is the people go and fill the theater, and they're crying out for like two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Paul wants to go in there and address them, but the rest of the disciples, um, fearing for his life, don't let him in there. So then the local magistrate comes and, is, and kind of tries to address their concerns. They don't really listen to him much, but finally he's able to get the crowd to di be dismissed. I want to look at a couple things when, when we look at this in regards to being a mom and some of the temptations of the world. Before we go further, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the moms. We thank you for their endless toil, for their children, even for their spouse, 
the impact that they have on children. I pray they'd be blessed today. I pray, God, you'd give them uh, a special blessing. We thank you, Lord, for giving us the gift of moms, giving us the gift of families, that that's how you put us together on this earth with families to be raised by moms and dads. We pray, Lord, for potentially any wounds that need healing, that you'd heal those up with moms or children. We thank you that you are a good God, that your word shows us the way every step of the way, and that you would be glorified in our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to uh, encourage and exhort the moms, and really all of us today, with two things. The first is this. Don't worry about what the world thinks. Don't worry about what the world thinks. Look back in verse 26. He says, uh, Demetrius says, <clears throat> towards the end, um, he's talking and he says, you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Was Demetrius giving an accurate account there? He was. His words were true. Sometimes the world can speak truth, and it can actually be truth, and, and even though a lot of times the world tries to uh, twist the truth and misshape it, or even speak mistruth or falsehoods, at times it's going to speak truth about us, and it's okay to own that truth, if it actually is truth. But at the end of the day, the world is going to be the world, and we need to get used to it. Because it is going to speak a lot of mistruths, a lot of falsehoods, and, and speak a lot of nasty things about us. We've got to stop worrying about that. Uh, if we are constantly thinking and concerned about what the world thinks, we will be distracted and it will pull us off what God wants us to do. How does worrying help us? Because I, sometimes the trap uh, and the temptation is, is to say to ourselves, well, what will they think? What will they say? What will they do? That isn't helpful. It isn't helpful. So if you're going to follow Christ, if you're going to be the mom that God wants you to be, you will be talked about. Probably you specifically at some point, but your calling in general will be talked about. It will be dismissed. It will be watered down. It will be looked on as, eh, what, you know, is that really a big deal? Here's the thing. Would Paul's words have been different if he was worried about the world? I mean, if he was thinking like, hey, what are they going to say? What might they do? Would he have changed his words? I mean, he probably would have been tempted to. But where was his singular focus? Ultimately on God and then on the task that God had called him to do. So we don't worry about the world. Think about this. You know the, the verse in 1 Peter, uh, the grass withers, and what does the flower do? It fades away. Friend, that's like the world. I mean, that's the picture we, we need to have of the world. It's going gonna, it's gonna to fade away. Just like I talked about a couple weeks ago. These different attacks that we're getting from different entities, from different beings, from different institutions, from different people, like, those are just little clouds. 
They're going to pass away. They're going to fade away. But what's going to remain is God. What's going to remain is his word. He's going to remain true to his word. That's why Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, and if if you read Matthew 6, in, in about 10 verses, he says seven different times the word anxious or depending on your version, the word worry. So he says in Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. We can put a period right there. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. He goes on. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now here Jesus is talking about the very thing that we need to actually keep on living. Can you make it without food? Not too long. Can you make it without drink? Much shorter, that's right. Got some scientists out there. So, don't worry about the world. That's a distraction. It will woo you with the siren call of all the things that it has to woo you with. But if you try to live up to what the world says a mom should be, you're going to fail. And if you live up and try to do what the world wants you to do and how you parent your child and how you raise your child and how you instruct your child and how you love your child, you will fail. Because you have the world's demands on one side and you have God's word and his dictates on the other. And most of the time they don't line up. They simply don't. So don't worry about the world. Second, don't please the world. Because if you're worrying about the world, what's going to be the temptation to please the world? So if you stop worrying about the world, you're not going to have as much of a temptation to please the world. You need to put your hand to the plow and don't look back. I was thinking and actually reading this morning the story of Elisha. Remember when he's called Elijah goes to Elisha. It's really tricky when you talk about it and you're speaking really fast. But Elijah goes to Elisha and is calling him, right? And he's in the field and he's plowing. And what does Elisha do with with all the equipment and with the oxen? He sacrifices them. But what was that indicating to God? That he was serious about the call. That he wasn't turning back. That he wasn't looking back. I mean, if you get rid of all your equipment... For your job, you don't have much else to turn to, right? So Elisha sacrifices that, making a clear statement to the Lord himself that he's serious about the call that he just received. Jesus says it like this, Luke 9, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I want to encourage you, put your hand to the plow, whatever task that motherhood entails, which is many tasks, put your hand to the plow and don't look back. Don't look to the side either. Just stay focused on what God has for you to do. You have a task to do. You need to do it with full focus and intentionality. Because at the end of the day, you can't please the world. Many believers are tempted. Many believers even try. They try to walk the tightrope of pleasing the world and pleasing God. It never works. 
and it will never be enough for the world. The world is like a ravenous, rabid dog. There's not a thing you can do to appease it. Not a thing. So if you slide a little, if you give in a little, if you make some concessions, guess what the world does? Is its appetite satisfied? Nope. It will want more and more and more. It will never be enough for the world. So whatever you do or say or try to explain, it won't be enough. You will never meet the standards of the world. So guess what? Just relax in that and and stop trying. Okay. Again, focus on the task at hand. Focus on what God wants you to do. Focus on what God is calling you to do in regards to your children. Friends, if, if J.K. Rowling, the author of, of Harry Potter, who's very feminist and liberal, uh, if, if she can have the world turn against her, and if Martina Navratilova, the great tennis player who's a lesbian, if she can have the world turn against her, as, as woke as they are, then clearly, as a believer, you will never do enough to please the world. Never. You won't even come close. So you might as well stop trying. It's a fool's errand and only results in your downfall. Think for a moment about Lot's wife. In fact, Jesus actually says, when he's talking about the end times, like almost like out of nowhere, he's like, remember Lot's wife. What was her downfall? She was more focused on what was behind her than what was in front of her. She had her hand on the plow, and she looked back. She was distracted. She disobeyed the Lord. So you have a task, a task of tasks, a great task, a great privilege. And the world says it's not a privilege. The world says, scoot them off to this institution, or scoot them off to that thing, or scoot them off over here. That's what the world says. God says, train them up in righteousness. God says, speak the truth and love to them. God says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's what God says. So you have a task, and don't be like Lot's wife. Think of Bill Gates for a second. With all his billions, friends, God is not impressed with Bill Gates. Elon Musk, who has some just very clever quips at times, with all his great knowledge and insight and, and dry sense of humor, a mind above minds, God's not impressed. He's not. And God does not like pause to get tips and tricks on how to run the world from Elon Musk. Elon, can I get your help on something? No, he, he created Elon. He fashioned Elon. He made Elon. And everything positive and good that Elon is and does, he owes to God. And every single dollar and every single uh, electric car, like that's ultimately from God blessing Elon with a mind of minds. And Elon can't take that away from God. Think for a moment... What would have made the Ephesians okay with Paul? I mean, he's like destroying the, 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 the Artemis, the, the worship of Artemis, the, this false god that they thought was a true god. What would have made the Ephesians okay with Paul? Think about that for a moment, because here's the thing. It wouldn't be enough 
to not oppose the making of idols. If he just would have remained silent and they're making idols, that, that wouldn't have been enough for the Ephesians. And it wouldn't be enough to say, oh, you know, I, I guess those idols are okay. They actually wouldn't have been okay with that. No, it, it's never enough for the world. At the end of the day, Paul would have had to start making silver idols himself for them to be okay with it. All you have to do is take a peek at the world today and silence, if you're silent on an issue, that, that's not good enough. If you just sort of support it, that's not good enough. Unless you are out there participating, celebrating, and being full, engaged with it, that is the only thing that might possibly be good enough. So the Ephesians here, unless Paul himself was making the idols, it would not have been good enough for them. Friends, don't end up in a situation where you're making idols, where you're fashioning those idols yourselves. That's what it would take to please the world. Anyway, who wants that? Like, seriously. You want the acclaims of the world? Like, like no thanks. Jesus said it rightly, Luke 6, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. And he goes on, For so their fathers did to the false prophets. So it's not worth it. Compromise always, always, always ends up in your demise. Always. Look at James chapter 4. Verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, why does, why does James here use the word adulterous people? Think about that for a moment. Why does he use that term? A term that calls to mind unfaithfulness in marriage. Because... We have this relationship with God. The church is the bride of who? Christ, right? So, if we're being a friend with the world, God's saying that's, that's cheating. That's cheating on him. It's being an unfaithful lover. So, you adulterous people, you, you can't have it both ways. You've got one groom, and it needs to be Christ himself. If you start walking, trying to walk a fine line between the world and being friends with it and, and, and God and friends with him, he calls that spiritual adultery. You're not being faithful to God himself. And notice what it says. If you're an enemy of God, do you think you have a place in the kingdom of heaven? No. No, if you're an enemy of God, you're not going to heaven. 
You're not going there. And so he says, whoever wishes to be a friend, just, just whoever wishes to be a friend. Think about that. It doesn't say whoever is a friend of the world. No, no, whoever wishes to be a friend. The desire, the intent, the heart. So if that's your desire, your heart, he's saying you make yourself an enemy of God. That's how serious the issue is when we talk about the world and its temptations and us being drawn to it and us walking in the ways of the world. That's how serious it is. Enmity with God. It will cost you your very soul. Don't do it. It's not worth it. So what about Paul and the apostles? I mean, did they, did they stop and try to mediate things with the, the metal workers union of greater Ephesus? Did they sit down and, and have a symposium with them? Did they start an interfaith dialogue, you know, pagans and Christians working together? No. The apostles had work to do. Now, Paul tries to get in there, and he wants to address the people, but uh, I can guarantee you if, if he would have had that opportunity, he wouldn't have tried to smooth things over. Okay? He was going to give them the gospel, like, straightforward. And that, the disciples knew that, and they're like, uh, we don't think you'll make it out of this one, friend. So they stopped him. So Paul remembered his task. That's the point. And he was still, even in the midst of that, a crowd that would literally tear him limb from limb, he was ready to stay on the task and do what God wanted him to do. So we need to remember, remember the task at hand. There's going to be many workers of idols along the way, and they will try to convince you to start making silver idols. It could be close friends. It could be other family members. Could be co-workers. Don't do it. It costs you your soul. It costs you the souls of your family. So remember the task. What is the task? To impart to our children, not just externals. Yes, we want them to grow up walking in the ways of the Lord, but, but we want them to know the Lord. We want them to know the Lord. And that, that looks a variety of different ways, and we're going to use all sorts of things to accomplish that. But if that is the, the primary goal and focus, then everything else that we arrange is going to be working towards that and is going to have that in mind. That means we, we, we will do certain activities, and that means we also won't do certain activities. And that means we'll put a priority on other certain activities, and we'll put less of a priority on other certain activities. It might mean we do this thing over here, 45 times each month. And it might mean this thing over here we only do twice a month. Why? Because the ultimate goal is to win their hearts for Jesus. To show them the truth. You want to you have the, the best, strongest for, for y'all. You want to give your, your kids and, and impart truth to them. One, start, start by loving your spouse and walking in righteousness. That speaks volumes to them. You need to make sure that the flavor of your house has a gospel aroma. It can't have 
a legalistic aroma. Can't even have an antinomium aroma, no law. But it, but it has to have the gospel and it has to be focused in forefront. Lifeway Research, they did a survey. 2,000 Protestant and non-denominational churchgoers who attended church at least once, once a month and, and have adult children ages 18 to 30. They wanted to discover what parenting practices were common in the families where young adults remained in the faith. Like what stood out, what helped them. The number one key thing that they found way at the top was children reading the Word. So as you're, as you're raising your kids, you've got to keep them in the Word. You've got to keep them reading it. They need to be in it. There needs to be family quiet times. It needs to be spoken about. That verse, as you go along the way, as you lie down, as you get up, like moms, dads, you're dri- as you drive in your Honda Odyssey, your Toyota Sienna, like take those opportunities. Sometimes I just start talking about the Bible and if, if there's a pause or a quietness and, and, you know, sometimes your kids are talkative and, and sometimes they're not. But to have Bible conversations going, look for those opportunities. A lot of times they come at the most inconvenient time. If you've got younger kids, it's usually bedtime when you're exhausted. And then they're like, I mean, they, I'm sure they're, they, they've got the routine down and they know you'll pause for that time. <laughs> and they can put their bedtime off a little bit. But it's going to be at times inconvenient. You have to, you have to take, make the most of those opportunities. Bible reading was the first the other two that they thought and saw were significant was prayer. That was, the, that was the second one. Not just you praying with them, but them praying themselves and encouraging them to pray. And then lastly was service in the church. Service in the church. Now, <clears throat> you can hear that. You can hear all three of those, but there's actually... You're actually missing a bigger one if you didn't hear my first little part that I said. It was parents who attend church at least once a month. They realize, and the statistics show, that if you, if you want your kids to walk with Jesus, you, you have to be in the church. You have to be present. Uh, I'm, I'm relying, I'm just going to be honest, I, I'm relying on y'all to help my kids come to know Jesus. Now, it's ultimately on me and my wife. I get that. Uh, ultimately on God, but I think you know what I'm saying, right? Like, it's primarily me. I got to stand before God someday and give an account for how they were raised. But I'm looking to the, my brothers and sisters to come alongside me and partner with me in speaking truth and loving my kids and showing them what a gospel-loving husband and a gospel-loving brother in Christ looks like and a gospel-loving sister and mom look like from all you all. Is I, I can model it in my home, and it's not going to be perfect, and your home's not going to be perfect either. But I want them to see it not just modeled in my home, which needs to and better be happening for all of us, but I want, to see it, I want them to see it modeled. So it's like, oh, it's confirmed. Oh, wow, yeah, him and, and her and her and him and her. Like, it's just confirmed to them over and over and over and over again. This is what gospel living looks like. So we're, we kind of covenant that together. We covenant together. Do y'all hear me? We're covenanting it together to, to love the little ones in our midst and to be an example. Whether we ever have a 30-second or five-minute conversation with them or not, 
we're setting the example of how we interact with them. What about if your children are grown and out of the house? You have the mightiest weapon available to you. You have prayer. Now, the great church father, Augustine, he grew up in the church. His mom went to church. She loved the Lord. And he wandered off from the faith. And if it could be uh, true of words, she, she prayed him back into the kingdom, so to speak. I mean, she prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. There's the famous story where she goes pleading to her pastor, just crying that she wants her son to be saved back in the faith. You know, and the pastor's like, with, with tears like that, the Lord hears your prayer. So, moms, dads, wherever your kids are at, out of the house, you have the mightiest weapon available to you. Pray for them. Get before the throne of God and really pour out your heart before him for your children. Either prayer works, like the Bible says, or it doesn't. And if you're a child of God, God hears your prayers. If you're a child of God, you have access to the throne of God himself. If you're a child of God, it says you can come with confidence and boldness before that throne. And yet, I mean, that, that throne, we don't treat it like we should. We've got, it's like, you know, people that sign up for the YMCA membership on January 1st. And they use it for like three weeks, right? You ever go to you know the, the gym the first couple weeks of January? I mean, it's like crowded. It's like crowded. But if you're like a regular, like, ah, if I can just make it through these three weeks, man, the numbers are going to die off. All them New Year's resolutions. Like, what about us with the throne of God? We, we've got the access. We've got the membership card. And sometimes it's like the rest of the year for us. No, let, let's go with boldness and confidence before that throne. Let's lift up our prayers to heaven. Friends, God, God hears those prayers. God hears them. The prayer of the righteous does what? Avails much. And there's a... When I used to teach Latin, there's a Latin quote, real short one, Dum Spiro Spero. Some of you might know it. While I breathe, I hope. And I remind myself of that sometimes, like, while I breathe, I hope, but also while, while other people I know, as long as they got breath in them, there is hope for their salvation. So the vilest unbelievers... Some of the vilest unbelievers have become the most stalwart believers. There is hope yet for your son or daughter if they don't know the Lord. Stay faithful in prayer. Trust the Lord. He is good. He is good. So don't worry about the world. Don't, don't please the world. It's just not worth it. It really is not worth it. Focus 
on the task at hand. Be a mother and be unashamed of it. Embrace the task. Do it unto the Lord with your whole heart. Your children will rise up and call you blessed, as Proverbs talks about. Embrace the task and keep the focus on God himself. Put your hand to the plow and don't look back. Let's pray. God, it is so easy for us to get off track. It is so easy for us to lose heart. It is so easy for us to be misguided with everything tossed our way, the arrows of the enemy, the arrows of the world. I pray right now that every person here would be steadfast, set their feet firmly planted on Christ, and set their hearts on you. And make that their primary focus of what you want and of who you are. That they would hear from you. They'd hear from your word and walk in truth and righteousness. Lord, I pray for every single child represented here that you would save each one of them. That is such a small task for you, Lord. But we beg you for it, God, for every child represented here, that you would save them. Uh, we don't care if it's their, their dying breath that they finally believe in you. We just beg and plead that you would save them. Be gracious to save them. Bring believers into their life that can model Christ to them and speak the truth to them. Do whatever it takes to save them. If you have to take away their health, their finances, their pride, whatever it is, God, to get them to bend the knee and truly acknowledge you as the Savior. We ask that you would do that. There is no price too high for them to pay. Send your spirit now, wherever they might be at. They might be in this room. They might be hundreds of miles away, God. But send your spirit now to prompt them, to speak to them, to work on their heart, to tend that soil, to soften the hardness of some hearts. Make them receptive to the truths of your gospel. Make them receptive to the truths of your spirit. Make them receptive to the truth of your word. And open up their eyes, remove the blinders. And, and for those kids represented here, Lord, that are walking with you, we pray for them, a blessing upon them that they'd continue to walk the narrow path, that they'd continue to walk in righteousness, that they'd be faithful to you, that they'd be faithful to their spouse, that they'd be faithful to their children. And that they'd put their hand to the plow and not look back. Father, we ask that salvation would come from you to many, including any lost children represented here, including anyone that's lost represented here today, including anyone that might be here that might be lost. Save them, Father.
wash your spirit into their lives and into their hearts and do your regenerating work. Do this for your glory. Do this for your namesake. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.